Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Friday, April 30th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, I'm going to play some tape of Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, and fair warning, I'm going to mock the man. You should know I'm going to mock him in an accent, and I would like to say a couple things before attempting that. One, I acknowledge the accent will not be accurate. It will be broad, and perhaps to a native speaker of Georgian, it will not sound authentic. Also, B... I want to acknowledge that speaking accented English does not connotate intelligence or unintelligence. The proper British accent, which that wasn't, can be wielded by a fool. The guy from Canarsie whose dad was in the scrap metal game. That guy could be a genius. With these provisos, I now bring you Georgia Governor Brian Kemp explaining why it is right and proper to go bowling, have your hair cut, and to interact in the public sphere with, if not abandoned, then alacrity. These rules vary by business type for a measured, health-driven approach. The health and well-being of Georgians are my top priorities, and my decisions are based on data and advice from health officials. I will do what is necessary to protect the lives and the livelihoods of our people. The lives and the livelihoods. And not just the livelihoods, but also the lives. Implicit in the livelihoods, would be, you think, would be the lives. But it was such a tempting phrase to say the lives and the livelihoods that I went there. Georgians are good neighbors, and that is why they make up good neighborhoods. And in all likelihood, they will pursue their livelihoods in their neighborhoods. You know, hood, brotherhood, bachelorhoods, means state or condition. So livelihood necessarily depends on the state or condition of being alive. Just as neighborhood depends on the state of condition of having neighbors who are alive. The general construct that you've heard of life, but also work, is wrong. Because there is no work without life. It's not a this and that. It's a, this leads to that, and also a, without this, there shall be no that. You know, kind of similar to how distancing, but tattoo parlors, that's also wrong. Hand washing and Clorox wipes, but also bowling, that is also wrong. 
because the latter things necessarily depend on you not doing the former things. There is no bowling without sticking your fingers in some dirty, dirty holes. Can't really coexist with cleanliness. I do believe Georgia is opening up too early. I do believe their admonitions to be hygienic and safe are mostly just words that give permission for people to be less hygienic and less safe than they need to be. Those words also give politicians cover when the people don't follow them. I told the meat factory workers to cough into their elbows. That all said, what can you do? And I want the states that are opening to open well. The governors are representing the interests of their states. The states are laboratories for democracy, and they're going to try it. And we are all going to witness the results. I don't have any predictions. You know, Germany and Singapore opened, then withdrew a bit. And I hope a place like Georgia or a place like Florida and the politicians running those places can do that. If Brian Kemp is honestly saying he's going to look at the data and the evidence, then I want him to do that even when the data and the evidence contradict the idea that everything can be open and everything will be fine. So if he does this and is honest and data-driven and says, okay, we need to go back inside a little bit, I'll give him a lot of credit. I really would. In all likelihood, this policy will hinder livelihood, but hopefully will not end too many lives. On the show today, I spiel about some ironic developments and make a prediction about how irony itself will develop. But first, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer, a regular panelist on Morning Joe, a mellifluous Tennessean, and the host of a new podcast about history. John Meacham's new program is called Hope Through History. The through meaning both throughout, but also describes history as a delivery mechanism thereof. John Meacham, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The 1918 flu pandemic, the Great Depression, World War II, the polio epidemic, the Cuban Missile Crisis, these are critical moments in U.S. history, inflection points. And if you notice... We, as Americans, inflected towards the side of success, shall we say, winning, getting through the moment, being forged in the fire to some extent. These are some of the historical events that are looked at by John Meacham and a team of great historians in a new podcast from Cadence 13 called Hope Through History. Pulitzer Prize winner John Meacham joins me now. Thank you for coming on, John. Thank you, sir. So... I know that the lead time of a podcast isn't the lead time of a book, but this conceit of hope through history, was it decided upon how much before our current moment in our current pandemic? Uh, zero moments before. <laughs> zero. Yeah. All right. Uh, I like no, the historian uh, rapid response team. Yeah. As it became clear that the pandemic was going to be the pandemic, we decided that there were these moments that 
might not be dispositively illuminating, but could be at least somewhat instructive and interesting. I mean, the 1918 flu pandemic is on everyone's minds, but I wouldn't know how much of an illustration of hope or hopefulness or optimism that would serve. I interviewed the uh, curator of the influenza archive at the University of Michigan, and you know, he looked at the 50 biggest cities, and there's just a lot of pessimism to be found in the response to the 1918 sure. epidemic. It wasn't exactly like, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, some great decisions and steely resolve. It wasn't like FDR getting us through the Depression and the war. My view is that history is not a GPS. You can't just type in, all right, we have a pandemic. How do we get out of it? And here are the three turns you take. But it is a diagnostic guide. There are certain symptoms that recur that suggest that different treatments might be efficacious. How much of the good decisions and the decisions that helped uh, shape America and got us through crises depended on the intellect, the temperament, the judgment of the president at the time? The analogy would be like, what does it take to win Uh, I don't know, pick a sport, football. And you might say, oh, your quarterback should be able to run. Or no, your quarterback should have a cannon for an arm and stay in the pocket. But I think we can all agree that if your quarterback is you know, uh, a 400-pound guy who uh, is just spends most of his time on his bed in New Jersey, he's going to be a terrible quarterback. So even though there's a lively debate about what are the skills, we could all agree if you have none of them, you won't be good. <laughs> Precisely. I don't think any rational person would say that the temperament and characteristics of the incumbent president have been commensurate to the moment. So in that case, it's absolutely dispositive. So it does matter who we send to that pinnacle. It matters who sits at the desk. So you look back. Yeah, it mattered that Franklin Roosevelt was a juggler, as he once put it. He said, I never let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. That was true in his marriage. It was true in his conduct of public policy. He was capable of incredible deception from time to time. He believed genuinely in what he called bold, persistent experimentation, not least because from August 1921 through the 20s, he had been experimenting with trying to figure out how to walk again. And so he would try a method, see if it worked. If it didn't, he would try something else. That's a pretty clear case where biography had a historical impact. As much as the leader is sometimes matched to the moment, it sometimes takes the moment to make the leader. So I'm thinking of Churchill and I'm thinking of Cuomo. And the English public basically had no use for Churchill when they were out of the war. And you can maybe even argue he didn't make great decisions except in that crisis moment. And I don't know if uh, Andrew Cuomo is quite at that level. I liked Cuomo as a New Yorker. But, you know, if you ever rode the subways, you might have a different opinion. Is it the case that if there is a person who rises to the moment in a crisis, they should be seen as a good leader? I think so. Um, You know, Winston Churchill basically got one thing right in his whole life. Yeah. And that was Adolf Hitler. Yeah, yeah. And the obverse of Neville Chamberlain doing a lot of things right, but getting Hitler wrong. And what do we think of Neville Chamberlain? Chamberlain's a much more complicated figure. Chamberlain and Halifax, before the third week of May 1940, were being entirely rational. They were being Europeans. What did you do if you were a European 
and you were in a continental struggle for power. You cut a deal. You gave them Normandy for a generation, right? And then you took it back. It was an entirely understandable way of being. Churchill saw something different. He saw it not as a problem to be managed, but as an existential crisis. And you can argue about everything about Churchill, Edward VIII, Gandhi, everything. However, he was in 1940 absolutely right. And we live in a different world because this weird, emotionally neglected, almost certainly alcohol dependent, at least, largely self-educated, not a great critical thinker, Churchill. He was an enthusiast, not an analyst. He got this one big thing exactly right. He was asked later, if you could relive anything, what would it be? And he would say 1940 every time, every time. And Hmm. so, yeah, of course, the moment makes sense. Abraham Lincoln is a great example, right? Uh, He... He was peculiarly well-suited to that particular moment. John Kennedy was, I think, in that brief period. So, yeah, there are these moments. And you don't have to be a hero worshiper. You don't have to oversimplify. I mean, the work of biography is inherently a process of putting order on that which is fundamentally chaotic. But... Mm -hmm. The struggle between biography and history, if it had been raining on June 6th, 1944, we could be living in a different world, right? Eisenhower made a decision and it worked. Might not have. Churchill could have collapsed. Any number of things. If the wind blows this way or that way, everything's different. I think the key thing in these kinds of conversations is always acknowledge the contingency of these things. And I think that makes the human drama even more compelling because most of these figures we're talking about understood this. They understood that they were gambling with other people's lives in many cases, certainly their own fame in the 18th century sense of reputation. And it's one of the reasons I have maybe too much sometimes, but I have an enormous sympathy for people who are in the public square trying to do these things. Because I think the damn miracle of human history is that we've managed to get as much right as we have. Yeah. So let me ask you that question or take that notion and ask it another way, which is, If it is true that great moments make great leaders, and without the great moments, it's perhaps hard to evaluate them, there seem to me some leaders who had, if not greatness, but seemed very adept and had a lot of skills, even if the moment didn't hit them. You know, FDR was a good governor of New York, and Kennedy had the at least intellect and personal charm that he showed during the Cuban Missile Crisis in many other aspects of life. But then there are the failed leaders who seemed very good absent a crisis. You start talking about Herbert Hoover in episode Mm -hmm. one. What a great American, one of the most admired men in the world, extremely capable businessman and administrator, got that one thing wrong, how to deal with the 
depression. And then there are leaders who maybe never get their crisis. Mm -hmm. So here's my question. We as voters, what you want to do as a society is have a society without too many crises or any crises. Sometimes they come up in a big way. Sometimes they don't. How are we supposed to select and elect our leaders if what you're supposed to do is not have a crisis, but also knowing that the only way we'll ever define them as great leaders or know if they're great leaders is if we do have a crisis? I guess what I'm asking is, take someone like Barack Obama, who largely avoided a crisis. I mean, BP was bad, but that's probably recency bias. When you have a leader who presides over a Pax Americana or a Pax wherever, how much can we really know what a great leader he was? Believe me, there are American presidents who think about this all the time, who think about their own role in history, their own place, the stories that we will tell of them. George H.W. Bush, whom I wrote about and knew pretty well, he genuinely believed in a kind of Burkean conservatism, which was you accept reality as you find it and you just try to do what you can. And you are not a revolutionary. He was a classical conservative, far more conservative in that way than Ronald Reagan, for instance. One of the first questions Bush would ask when something would happen would be, how can we not make this worse? Mm -hmm. Which is a very interesting initial reaction. I think Obama's a lot like that. I think he had that that instinct too. I think when we assess who we should send to the pinnacle, I think figuring out how they reacted in either personal crises or previous public crises as a case study is probably the best test. So with FDR, you had a pretty good sense that he was a resilient man because of polio. With Kennedy, it was hard to know this in real time, but he actually endured an enormous amount of pain in his life, physical pain, kept up a mask of command. He was also clearly devoted to more the life of the mind than than many other popular politicians. Same with Obama. In those cases, you also have the vices of your virtues, right? Obama could arguably overthink things and was so careful to restrain his passion that historically is going to be fascinating to see how he endures. One of the things that I thought for a long time, it was that, you know, Obama is probably the luckiest American politician of the last several generations. Remember all the Senate candidates imploded on him in Illinois and um, he's running fairly even with McCain. And of course the financial crisis comes and then Donald Trump, becomes his successor. And I remember yeah. thinking, oh my God, Obama's going to look like Cicero forever. <laughs> Has your profession changed immensely in the last 10 years? Because I'll give you my perspective, which is that it seems to have all the things I thought were agreed upon in history. Not all the things, but so many of the things have experienced an upheaval. Grant, when I was in college, always ranked as one of the worst presidents. Now, in retrospect, has had a huge revival, thanks in part to a great Cherno biography. The impeachment of Andrew Johnson, not only thought of as a terrible partisan idea, but 
JFK wins a Pulitzer, exactly making the point that yeah. the uh, senator who voted not to impeach was a hero. He seems like a scoundrel now. Then you look at the man you won a Pulitzer Prize writing about, Andrew Jackson. I mean, the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner, the two men who defined the Democratic Party. Now the only debate in the Democratic Party is which of those is more evil. So yeah. those are a few things <laughs> that have totally changed. Yeah. But my question is, you know, I've only really... I've been alive as long as I've been alive. Maybe there were bigger changes from the 30s to 40s or 40s to 50s. But is this a period of almost unprecedented tumult and upheaval in the historian profession? In some ways, the more significant conversation that's unfolding is this question about, is this a 1776 country or is this a 1619 country? Is this a country defined by the enslavement of African-Americans and should we in fact tell our story not as a story of gradual liberation, but as a story of perennial repression. That's a hugely important, hugely complicated, hugely emotional debate that's unfolding. More specifically, thinking about our own moment, I have a theory that I don't think I've written about yet. You know, there's a sense that there was this New Deal consensus, and Mm -hmm. then it fell apart, really, with Goldwater and the rise of the Sunbelt Republicans in the 60s, culminating in President Reagan's election in 1980, and that we had this brief period of American consensus. I have a slightly different take, which is that in many ways— 1933 to 2017 can be seen as a kind of figurative conversation and debate between Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. The idea that there were two fundamental questions, the relative role of the state in the marketplace and the relative projection of force against commonly agreed upon foes and rivals. And Roosevelt was at one end of that field. Reagan more or less was at the other And that every president through Obama governed, to extend the metaphor, played on the field marked off by those positions. Hmm. This particular moment is not a sequential chapter in that conversation. You know, the uh, free trade parties become protectionist, a party of some sense of cultural coherence and piety has become accepting of a rogue who weaponizes his roguishness. This isn't part of that consensus. And I've blown this by both President Obama and President Bush, 43, and they've basically agreed. You know, they were having tax debates about rates, not kind, right? Their their battles were about degree, not kind. Right. The incumbent well, represents a fundamental threat to the kind, And so November becomes so fascinating because Vice President Biden is nothing if not a figure of that Roosevelt-Reagan consensus. So as I look at the current occupant of the White House, it does seem to me that we have had past presidents who have had 
been egotistical and rageful. You wrote about Andrew Jackson. Those phrases, those words can apply to him. But we've never really had a president who's had, I think, no ideology outside of himself. Even the ones like Nixon was certainly self-serving, but he had an ideology and an agenda other than self-aggrandizement. We've also never really had a president who didn't think of his job as outside being a leader. He's really just someone who comments on the presidency <laughs> and he's happened. he happens to have the role where we have to listen to him the most, the presidency itself. Let us say he wins the election. Is this a source of hopelessness or to his failings and the fact that he doesn't really see his job as being president? Maybe the best you could say that it will be a pause in this national experiment, that because he is redefining the presidency so differently, maybe by not defining it at all, that that is the best hope that we have for getting through this part of history. It's a great question. I, I think the answer is implicit in, in the question. That is certainly my hope. If he were to be reelected, it would be a, a severe indictment of the capacity of an allegedly advanced democracy to exalt reason over passion, which was one of the fundamental missions, the fundamental insights of the American Revolution, however imperfect it was is that we could use our brains a little more often than we used our guts. I don't see how clinically one can assess the evidence of the last three years and say, yes, this is a great idea. We should do this again. I am confident we can survive Trump, but I don't want to test it. And if he were to win, I think it would be such a severe blow to the idea that we can use our brains and not just vote on our guts and our appetites that I worry about it all the time, honestly. Then I say, all right, this is a nation that lived through generation upon generation upon generation of slavery. This is a nation that removed its indigenous peoples. This is a nation, my native region where I live, from Appomattox to Selma, we lived under white supremacy. And so we have corrected our imperfections, at least to some degree. I'm confident we'll do it again, but I know it's going to be a lot easier to do if we can move on from this particular chapter. Hope Through History is the new podcast hosted by John Meacham. There he's joined by, oh, you know, all the great historians, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Walter Isaacson, Michael Beschloss, to talk about the events that forged us in the 20th century. And some forging is still going on. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, sir. And now the spiel. A funeral home in Brooklyn was raided by city and state officials after it was found that the proprietor was storing bodies in unrefrigerated U-Haul vans, which is to say U-Haul vans. People get pretty touchy about their dead, ironically, sometimes more than the living. That 60 people who were living are not in New York City. That's not the news. That fact alone that does not make news except as a general statistic because set against the backdrop of every day where over 100 or as of a week ago, 200 people were dying each day, we wouldn't comment about 50. But when those 50 people, now former people, now bodies, when they are involved in this unrefrigerated U-Haul truck story, then we pay attention. 
Again, it's a little ironic. And a lot of national outlets did pay attention. This was from CNN. And I've been seeing rider trucks, U-Haul trucks, the refrigerator truck there with people loading bodies on it constantly all day. Again, that was Brooklyn. This took place in Brooklyn, if you were wondering. Brooklyn, the location of that funeral home. The name of the funeral home is the Andrew Cleckley Funeral Services. And the awning of Andrew Cleckley Funeral Services has a picture, a picture larger than life-size of Mr. Andrew Cleckley on it. Because one might wish to look upon the dapperly attired funeral director before you purchase his services to usher your relatives into the afterlife. I never got that, by the way, why real estate brokers include their pictures. Oh, this guy looks like he's got an honest face. Or look at her jaw. She'll get me a good deal on a house. Now, here's the irony. And that is the theme of today's show. Irony. Andrew Cleckley put his name out there and his face out there, presumably to convey trust and accountability. You could trust me. You could trust me more than my rivals, which might be called Harmony Funeral Home or Celestial Funeral Services or maybe the Woodward Funeral Chapel. But do we have a picture of Woodward? I mean, right there on the awning, we do not. But now, ironically, we have Andrew Cleckley, who has issued two summonses, declining comment and wishing he never put his face up there or out there. There's been a lot of irony, I have noticed, like in Louisiana. I'll read from the Baton Rouge Advocate. GOP lawmakers rolled back the number of reasons people could access mail-in ballots that were included in an initial plan debated last week. Republicans in Louisiana have claimed a more robust expansion of mail-in ballots would tarnish the integrity of the elections by inviting voter fraud. Election experts, fact-checkers, and studies have repeatedly shown that while the risk is slightly higher with mail-in ballots, voter fraud is still extremely rare. Lawmakers, this is the part, lawmakers voted by mail on the emergency plan. The House approved it 62-39 and the Senate voted 31-8. to That is right. And that is irony. They limited the right to vote by mail, by mail. And by the way, I counted six of the 39 senators were women. So mostly it was males who said by mail that you couldn't vote by mail. Although... Heather Miley Cloud is a female Louisiana senator from Turkey Creek, Louisiana, and she shared this a couple years ago. It is called My Election Fraud Story. Corruption and election fraud is rampant in Louisiana. I should know because I was a victim of it. My name is Heather Cloud, and I have been elected mayor of Turkey Creek since 2011. But in 2014, during my re-election campaign, my opponent and his campaign paid disabled people to vote for him. They brought them to the polls during early voting, promising them things like bicycles and a chance to lead the town parade. Yeah, I checked it out. It seems to be the case. In the election for mayor of Turkey Creek, four people, possibly mentally disabled, could not confirm that part, but they were given each $15 to vote against Cloud. One was apparently promised that he could lead the town parade. Cloud lost 110 to 106, but then won in court. And now here she is today in the state Senate voting against mail-in ballots out of a concern for voter fraud, even though it was in-person fraud that was her near undoing. So maybe that's a small irony, but limiting voting by mail by mail, that's a quite large irony, almost along the lines of, I don't know, the Taliban rule against kite flying being communicated via a huge box kite. There's a lot that's ironic about these times of pandemic when the hero is a person who shelters in place, when 
brave protesters show up wearing camouflage and strapped with AR-15s as a means of communicating they will stand up to the virus, or maybe that the virus will not be able to see them, what with their clever camouflage attire. I guess they hope it blends in with the marble and granite edifices of the Michigan State House. Irony. There is a thought that irony should flourish in tough times, that people resort to gallows humor or seeing the world through a dark lens. But I actually think the opposite. The great age of irony, the Letterman-inspired, shit-eating grin irony of the 80s and 90s, they were peaceful times. Things were mostly flush. If you look at times of horror, plagues, war, famines, irony is not in abundance. Dickens, who chronicled the ravages of the Industrial Revolution, was not an ironist. He was earnest. Hemingway, who fought in the Spanish Civil War, didn't engage in irony. Matthew Brady's Civil War photographs were not ironic. In fact, all of the metaphysical club, the American philosophers that Louis Menand wrote about, they were affected by the horrors of the Civil War, and they weren't ironic. It's the peaceful periods that give us irony, a kind of twisted insincerity, saying the opposite of truth or true belief for effect. Why? I don't know. But I think it might be the human need for friction, that we're actually used to processing horrors and threats. And when we are deprived of them, we invent a version of them for ourselves. During the Clinton economic boom, it seemed easy to say, eh, nothing is real. There are no consequences. Gen X is ironic because there was no war. Millennials are earnest because they were born into two never-ending wars and were smacked with a recession. Anyway, it's just a theory, but I believe that art and thinking and just modes of expression in general that emerge from the pandemic will be deeply unironic. While it won't be ironic, while the different means of communication won't be ironic, I do think they could get quite caustic. They'll even get scathing at times. But I do think that people, artists, communicators will strive to say something that they mean and stand for something real. And meaninglessness won't have the cachet it once did. Because there's nothing better at disabusing a person that nothing really matters, nothing better than that than imperiling that person's very existence. The age of Trump, the ultimate expression of nihilism, will give way to the age of earnestness as a backlash and act of self-protection. And some glib soul will say, huh, the clown ushered in such a serious backlash. Isn't that ironic? And the answer will be no. No, it's about the most predictable thing of all. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST associate producer. She finds hope in the historical example of Chester A. Arthur, who was maligned as a hopeless political hack who looked like a walrus, but rose to the moment and defied corruption and also ate seven pounds of kelp and fresh mackerel unapologetically. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, finds historical hope in the example of Sojourner Truth, who fought her arch nemesis, sedentary fibber, in a series of confrontations that will soon be a graphic novel in a Netflix series. The gist. You know, Emily Dickinson said, hope is the thing with feathers. And James Joyce wrote, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. Therefore, we have determined that hope through history is a taxidermied parrot. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.